and welcome to the Eastern Kicks podcast, a regular magazine program about East Asian film led by me, Andrew Heskins, founder and grandmaster of EastonKicks.com, and James Mudge, our leading writer. Hey, Each episode, we'll be taking a look at the latest films, news, and festivals, often chatting to filmmakers and stars along the way. Hello again, and welcome to our latest show. This episode, we're doing an anime special of sorts. We're chatting to Helen McCarthy, well-known author of so many of our favourite books on anime, Mm -hmm. about her latest book, Collaborative Effort, on Leiji Matsumoto. We'll also hear from various members of the Eastern Kicks team on their favourite animes. But first, let's get to that important question. But this time, it's... (laughs) There's a twist. There's a twist. (laughs) Because we're both on the same same thing. We are. We are first time it's ever happened. Which is... uh, a very, a very nice, uh, very nice distilled alcohol that's been made by my uh, my builder Dimitri. Mm-hmm. And you're going to try and you're going to say it, or you're going to get? I'm going to get the special lady. We've got a very special guest who's going to pronounce uh, Dimitri's surname, and I think this is what we're naming this this very mm. interesting uh, distilled uh, alcohol. There we go. There you go. I, I would have said it exactly the same, and with that same charming female mm. accent. But yeah. Well, it's Here's been it. said before. All right. Let's do it. Oof, very, very, uh, very nice bouquet on it. Oh, it's good. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Love. Oh, very strong, but very. Mm. <laughs> I'm getting all kinds of different notes off that man. It is quite her- herbalish. Herbal. Like, yeah, yeah. Very, very. Of... Nice. Nice. What they kind of what they say sort of florals and all that kind of language <laughs> that they use. Hints of summer. <laughs> That's really really nice. Uh, my mm. compliments, and I'm not going to try and say the name, but that's. That's a high point for the podcast. Yes. Good old Dimitri. <laughs> Many thanks, my friend. Cheers to Dimitri. Cheers to him. Hi, folks. Philip here, and I'm just checking in with you guys to give you a heads up on an unsung anime that you may or may not have seen. My pick would be Giant Robo, The Day the Earth Stood Still, based upon Mitsutero Yokoyama's manga of the same name, set in an alternate universe where the energy problems of our world have been solved by the invention of the miracle Shizuma Drive, which allows everything from electric toothbrushes to power stations to be powered cleanly and with no environmental fallout. The problem is, is that while the energy crisis has been solved, crime is still a problem. And in this case, in their universe, the big fire group, a bunch of cackling mustachioed villains who have decided that they need to be in charge of everything, set themselves in direct opposition to the International Police Organization and specifically their group of superhuman adventurers and crime stoppers called the Experts of Justice. Now in this universe, there are no major land wars or armies or navies. Everything gets settled by duking it out with giant robots, be they powered by oil, nuclear power or solar energy, it doesn't matter. It's just an excuse to have large robots hitting each other in the face. And in this case, the universe is set with a main hero called Giant Robo and his I think 10 year old operator Daisaku Kusama who was given control of the robot by his dying father who originally built it for Big Fire but decided at the last minute to use it for the forces of good. Now why do I think that this is a great anime? Well even if you don't like the premise in and of itself the animation itself is spectacular all original hand-drawn animation. This was in the days before CG and digital cell painting. So everything is hand-drawn and painstakingly animated. Originally designed to be told over a series of OVA videos for three years, the show itself ended up taking over six years to be made because the team that made them had to keep going back to other jobs to pay for the bills and then coming back to Giant Robo. But on top of expert direction by Yasuhiro Magawa, as I said, its main focus beyond the heartfelt animation, the performances both in English and Japanese, is the amazing, romantic, deep sweeping score by Masamichi Amano, which at the time was probably the most complicated symphonic score for an anime of its day. On top of that, the show deals with very deep problems such as what's the nature of evil do good men automatically get passes because they've done something good in their lives and therefore anything they do after that should be brushed under the carpet 
and the central premise of the show, which is a conversation that happens between Daisaku and his father as his father uh, is dying. And he simply asks, can happiness be achieved without sacrifice? And I think by the end of the series, you not only have an answer to it, you realize the depths both the forces of good and evil will go to to achieve their own sense of happiness. I really hope you guys give it a chance and seek it out. It's just recently had a new Blu-ray release from Discotheque Media in the United States, which has restored print and audio, and it is probably the best way of viewing the series. And is the sort of release that, as an anime fan, you would put on to finally experience it in the best way possible. And also, if you're entertaining people who are not anime fans, it simply looks brilliant to look on on a big screen TV. So at this point, uh, we have the great pleasure of being joined by Helen McCarthy. Hello. Author of such uh, great books as The Anime Movie Guide. Nice. And many books, like I've uh, got the one on Tetsuka over there. The... We've asked you on the program to chat about your new book, which is on Leji Matsumuko. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right, and I'm delighted to be asked. The, the honour's all mine. Um, <laughs> I should say straight up, it's not just my book. Um, it's a collaborative effort between a group of scholars, animators, comic book artists and costumers. Uh, when we were thinking about Matsumoto and the idea started with my colleague, Dr. Darren Jan Ashmore of um, Yamanashi Daigakuin in Kofu in Japan, uh, we thought about the best way to approach this. And at first we thought of a book like my Tezuka book which, as you say, is, 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 it's a lovely book, and I'm so glad it was done so beautifully. But it's a book that's very expensive to produce, and these days, not many Western publishers are keen on doing that kind of a book on a figure that doesn't have a big name in the West. Mm. Miyazaki you could do, Shinkai mm. you could do, um, Tezuka you could do. There are, there are name-getters like that, but even though Matsumoto is attached to two of the biggest properties in Western anime fandom, Star Blazers, which broke American fandom open, mm. and Captain Harlock, which is Albator, broke French fandom open. His name is not recognized, so we weren't getting anywhere. So Darren's an academic. I've done quite a bit of academic work, and we said, shall we do this as a book of essays and approach a university press, and we can get it published that way? And we looked at all that, and it was it was... People think that publishing a book is simple <laughs> and easy, and it is neither. <laughs> one, one of the problems is that whatever type of book you want to do, you have to find the right publisher who is able to bring that book to the right market at the right time. And obviously that's, that's always a complicated equation, particularly with a new topic like an unfamiliar name in the West. I mean, hell, the President mm. of the United States can't pronounce half the names we deal with in anime every day. So, so <laughs> how many people are in that situation? So we looked at it and we thought, we'll do an academic book. But one of the issues with academic publishing is because it's mainly designed to be of use to academics, which is absolutely fair, that's what the name says, they don't actually have to buy their own books. Mm. The colleges buy them for them. So it's not unknown for the average academic book to cost over 100 quid. <laughs> yeah. And wow. they do go as high as 14 or 1500. <laughs> mm. Because they're library copies and they're going to be used by generations of scholars. Mm. So we thought now nah, that the actual standard university press, and we had several university presses who were absolutely lovely and you know, great to talk to. We thought that will work for this because what we want is a book for the intelligent reader who doesn't know Matsumoto or necessarily anime. So that could be a scholar. It could be a film scholar, it could be a historian, it could be a language scholar, it could be an animation scholar. Or that could be the intelligent general reader and fan who's maybe into comics but doesn't know much about anime or into comics but doesn't know much about Japan or into plays and stories but doesn't know much about Matsumoto. So we looked and looked and looked to find a press that would cover both academics and general readers. And in the end, we were lucky enough to meet McFarland. And they looked at the idea and said, yes, great. So we were able to go ahead. So the idea was that because Matsumoto has had a long career in manga, he made his, his professional debut at the age of 15. 
and he's 82 now. Mm, so he's had wow. a very long career working in manga. He's had a very long career working in animation. And he's had a very long career as a collaborative worker across all his different franchises in the huge universe he's created. We thought, why don't we take that same collaborative approach? And, and, and why don't we recruit not just scholars, but people from the comics world, people from the animation world, people from the fandom world, people from the costume world, and get them together to present different aspects of Matsumoto. Mm. And that was, it was a thrilling process. It was a real white knuckle ride because obviously Darren and I had things that we thought we must cover in this book. And finding the right person again to cover that topic can be quite a challenge. And then because we were working with some people who had trained as academics to write in a very specific way and others who hadn't trained as academics so were good writers but couldn't write in that specific way, my job as editor and Darren's job as editor was to manage that process so that they could be themselves as writers but still contribute in a way that would make the book a coherent whole mm. and easy for a publisher to handle. So it's it's been quite a ride, but I have to say it's it's been so much fun. <laughs> so tell us about Matsumoto and why do you think he's been so overlooked? Well, only overlooked in the West mm -hmm. um, and, and generally in the Anglophone West because he's much less overlooked in Europe mm, where okay. he, he has toured quite extensively. Um, I mean, as recently as last year, he gave all his fans a scare because obviously he was 81 last year. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, at a convention, after five days of grueling work with, with press and fans and convention goers, he had a collapse and had to be hospitalized in Italy. <laughs> and he, he pulled around from that, but, but he, he does a lot over there. I think partly because we have this thing in the West of deifying directors. Mm. valorizing directors or uh, in comics terms artists above mm. everyone else who contributes to the process so when you hear about a great comic very often people say that's a comic by stan lee yeah. yeah and stan lee himself at least in his later days would be the first to say no 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 that's not a comic by stan lee mm. i may have come up with the idea or contributed to the story but this guy did the drawing this guy did the inking, this person did the colouring, this person fed in. It was a collaborative art form. Mm -hmm. And because we haven't had Matsumoto's name attached as a director to a major project that we conceived of in that way, we don't recognise him. His, his great West, his great English language breakthrough was a show called Space Battleship Yamato, which went into America as Star Blazers mm, mm. and is single-handedly responsible for solidifying American fandom. There was already a certain amount of American anime and manga fandom, but Star Blazers gave them a big TV franchise every week to unite behind. And I know, you know, fans 40-something, 50-something, 60-something now who can still remember and their eyes light up when they tell you about racing home from school at breakneck pace to get home before Star Blazers started on TV, you know, running into the house, throwing their school bag down, throwing themselves down in front of the TV, anything not to miss a second of that opening theme. <laughs> Space. We're leaving Mother Earth to save the human race, our star blazers. And as we all know, because we've, we've had it in our own childhoods, when that gets you, it gets you really deeply. But when you're a kid, you don't actually think about who's making this show, do you? Mm, no, you no, don't actually true. think about where does this show come from, or even that it's a show. It's just a world that you go into. Mm -hmm. So Matsumoto has so many people who are devoted to the world that he created with Yoshinobu Nishizaki, who was the producer for the series and who originally conceived it. Nishizaki's series wasn't working for him in development. So he pulled in Matsumoto and immediately the whole thing began to gel because it tied into Matsumoto. So it took off because 
somebody brought to it the sensibility it needed. And I'm a big believer in that. Even if you, even if you're working, as many people do nowadays, on a, a property that isn't yours, that's come to you from elsewhere, maybe as a comic, maybe as a novel, to make it work on a screen, it takes the right vision and sensibility to bring that together in a totally different format. And Matsumoto had that visual imagination that he could take the raw material of the proposal and say, these are the designs that will work, these are the concepts that will work, these are the costumes that will work, and create the world. And as a result of that, many people consider, although it, it, although there was a lot of litigation about it, actually, through the years, most people consider Matsumoto the driving force behind the ethos and world building of Star Blazers, Space Cruiser, Yamato. But he was he was also very much part of that generation that came out of World War Two. Mm-hmm. And that whole generation right across the world, every country that was involved in World War Two, the kids who grew up in it, the kids who were teenagers when they went into it, the kids who were born in the immediate aftermath, all carried that mark of people who had had devastating thing happen in their lives that made them determined to live every minute to the full. And Matsumoto was one of those. He was born during the war. His dad was a fighter a fighter pilot trainer before the war. Really, really superb pilot who trained squadrons of fighter pilots. I mean, in Britain, we'd be calling him a national hero and he'd be running on Spitfires, but because he was Japanese, of course, we didn't quite take that view. Um, hmm. But he himself was so totally devastated by what he saw during the war, by the the squadrons of young men that he trained that never came home, that he led that never came home, that at the end of the war, he just stepped totally away from flying. He was offered roles in the new um, Americanized Japanese defense force structures. He was offered roles as a commercial pilot. He wouldn't touch them. He could not bear to get behind the controls of a plane again, having, as he saw it, used his skills to send so many young men to their deaths. And so the family had a really difficult time. They went from being fairly affluent, middle class, you know, family with money and space and resources to a family whose breadwinner was selling vegetables in a cart door to door and taking on extra jobs as a charcoal burner because they were overnight and he could watch the kilns overnight and then he could sell his vegetables door to door. They actually struggled. Many people in Japan struggled. It was a huge thing at the time that there wasn't actually famine in Japan, but people did starve. And even people who didn't starve were very hungry after the war, when, when, when the war ended. And so it was a struggle for the Matsumoto family. And young lady really wanted to be an engineer. But he knew that to go through uni to doctoral stage and then get an entry-level job was more than his family could sustain. Because, you know, obviously he paid his own way through high school by, by doing comics from an early age and doing advertisements from an early age. But he couldn't pay his own way through uni and he couldn't contribute to his family while he was doing that. So he took the decision that he was going to go to Tokyo and uh, try his luck in the big markets of the big city selling comics and said to his parents that he would send back as much money as he could, set off for Tokyo on a train at the age of 15 and has been making comics and manga and animations ever since. Just a remarkable, remarkable mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. One thing I was interested to ask myself is that you know, having grown up seeing some of the, uh, you know, some of the the Western versions of the the cartoons, like how much, in terms of like the dialogue and the dubbing, was there a lot of like cultural changes to the scripts or anything, or, or edits or anything like that? I've never, I have to admit, I haven't seen like the Japanese original version, so just wondering what differences there might be. Well, I don't know the Japanese scripts intimately because my Japanese is nowhere near good enough to (laughs) to identify that. But I do know that with cartoons in general, there have been two things that have been Mm. problematic for Japanese animation coming into, particularly into English. Mm. One is that there is a general, there was for many years, and I think there still is to some extent, a generalized perception 
that's negative about any Japanese culture connected with war or fighting or militarism. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did our best to culturally eradicate all concept of their history from Japan mm. to prevent any militarism again. So there was a lot of editing there. But there's also a huge amount of white supremacy going on. Okay. Um, you'll notice this in a, a number of cartoons all over. Even in a few shows where the hero is obviously Japanese mm -hmm. you know, and, and the sidekick is obviously Western, mm -hmm. the sidekick will be the hero according to how the Western dialogue is slanted. Oh, right. okay. It will be rewritten to make, to, it'll be rewritten to give them all Western names. Mm -hmm. It'll be rewritten to make the Oriental guy not number one. Yeah. He can still mm. be heroic, but he's not going to be in the lead because if you have a blonde all-American type, that cannot possibly be number two if you're going to sell to American networks. Mm -hmm. just can't happen. The other thing is that uh, there is an absolute horror in America and has been ever since the, the, the fairly recent post-war years of cartoon characters drinking, smoking, or behaving mm. in any way like adults, yeah. even in an adult situation. Mm -hmm. So you can have somebody gunning someone down on the street but you cannot have that person walking into a bar and drinking hard liquor they have to go for a milkshake <laughs> and what, what, what are the leading characters in well <laughs> leading secondary characters in yamato is the ship's doctor yeah. who is a very compassionate figure yeah. but like many doctors uses humor to defuse and deal with a lot of situations and mm -hmm. like many doctors uses alcohol for the mm. situations that humor can't deal with. And right through both the comic and the show, he is constantly seen swigging from a bottle of sake. <laughs> um, and I believe in the, the American version, he drinks mineral water or soda pop. <laughs> and goes, I have never yet had a mineral water that has the effect on me that his mineral water has on him. And I wish I could. <laughs> but, you know, that st stuff like that makes a big difference. And kids yeah. are kind of... Kids are subconsciously aware of that because, you know, they know what their mum and dad would do in these situations. Mm. They know how adults behave. So I think children accept that kind of censorship mm -hmm. as part of the humour of the situation. As soon as, they're, as soon as they're six or seven or eight and old enough to realise that dad reaches for the scotch as soon as he comes home when he's had a bad day, <laughs> they begin to see this. Um, they begin to see a whole layer of humour that yeah. we don't intend them to see mm. in the irony of us pretending that yeah. adults are actually, you know, we're just going to have some dandelion and burdock, sweetie. That's, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there, there, there was a great deal of that. And, and in some shows there was, and, and here in Britain as well, well as, as in America, there has been so much editing mm. that you've practically rewritten the whole thing. Yeah. Um, not so much on Star Blazers, but on certain of the Astro Boy, Tetsuan Atom American mm. edits. Huge amounts of material was cut out. And one of the worst sufferers has been Science Ninja Team Gatchaman, Battle of mm. the Planets. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, a whole extra character had to be written in to cover the, the holes that they made ripping things out of the script. Seven's Arc 7. Yeah, Seven's Arc 7. <laughs> not Japanese. It is, it is a lot. Plus, of course, at that time, everyone was saying, Star Wars, you have to have a cute robot. <laughs> there is a cute robot. Put a cute robot in. And there was much less, um, much less concept then, partly because of this colonialism towards Japan, mm. but also partly because the whole children's cartoon industry was very much uh, a fly-by-night, almost a border town industry. Mm. You would just buy something and hack it about and adapt it to what you needed, mm. rather than have the sense that, as, as now, when Studio Ghibli say to Disney, don't cut, and Disney don't cut. Yeah. Mm. There, wasn't, there wasn't the same level of veneration for certain Japanese studios as there is now. Mm -hmm. you, Actually, would you think the reception then was different like so what was the audience like in japan i mean again just for you know growing up and stuff i i would associate these as being more you know specifically aimed at children so i was just wondering what the audience yeah. in japan was like then well with, with with yamato um the audience was with the japanese original the audience was largely junior high school okay with so... some which is like um 11 to 14, 15, mm. oh, some okay. going down to 10-year-olds, 9-year-olds, mm. others going up towards 16, 17-year-olds. Mm -hmm. But it, it, was, it was perfectly calculated for that. I mean, if you look at the original story, mm -hmm. Earth is being attacked 
by a technologically vastly superior alien invading force. Mm. Now, kids in the 70s watching Japanese TV had dads and uncles and grandfathers who knew exactly what that was like <laughs> and yeah. could tell them. But it was one big metaphor. Mm. And the people of Earth who are being bombarded, who are starving, who are weakened, who have no weaponry to fight this, discover that a few heroic people led by one charismatic guy <laughs> have saved a World War II Japanese battleship, the Yamato, which, is, as we all know historically, was sunk and remains sunk. Mm. But the Yamato has been raised, and she has been retrofitted to turn her into a starship. Yeah. And a few brave young people under the chairmanship of this experienced captain take her out into deep space on the hope of a message from what looks like a friendly alien to yeah. try and get some technology that will help them to stand up against the aliens fighting their planet. So it's a really complex story. Mm. It's, should we seek an alliance with someone who might not exist, who might be hostile to us, who might be betraying us? We don't know. Should we seek allies outside our own kind, outside mm. our own humanity, to help us fight an even deadlier threat? What are we doing? We have no idea. Mm. Will this ship even hold together? Mm -mm. Will its guns work? Will it get there? All of that packed in there in what looks like, if you just said, gang of kids, take a starship into space to try and get help for a battle. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You can do it simply or you can do it on the really complex emotional level it worked on. And there are all sorts of things tied in there that, again, children and young people would have related to. Mm -hmm. There's the fact that um, one of the crew lost his brother in an earlier sally of the war and is still very much smarting from that and turns out later not to have lost his brother in the way he thought at all. Mm. And that's a really interesting subplot. Um, one of the women on board is uh, one of, is the, the young hotshot pilot's love interest, but there are all sorts of triumphs and tribulations to overcome before the two of them can get together. And even then, the course of true love never runs smooth. It had everything that young preteens and teens need, mm. but it also had a lot of echoes and resonances from Matsumoto's own memories of the actual Second World War. Mm -hmm. And he, he is a huge World War II buff. He's one of the most internationally renowned and respected wow, okay. collectors and authorities on it. Mm -hmm. um, he is fascinated by how people find strength to deal with these enormous conflicts. Um, he's, he's also a great authority on the, the samurai sword. Oh, and it's frequently okay. consulted on that. Mm. And again, it's the same thing. These weapons that we make into icons, mm -hmm. what do they represent about the human spirit? Mm. What tell us about ourselves? Uh, where do we go with them? So all of that is 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 embedded in there, mm. and it is the kind of story that any teenager from almost any developed culture could mm. tie into. You know, because the other thing it does is it says because our world is decimated, because so many of our adult fighting forces have died at the front. Mm -hmm. You kids are all we've got. Mm. 
you kids are all there is. You have to save us because there is no one else left. So teenagers who spend most of their lives being told things rather than ask things, who spend most of their lives being told to shut up and listen when they're burning to say stuff, are suddenly told there's only one dad left in the block. You're going to have to go and take on adult responsibility. Mm. And there's going to be nobody but him. There's only one supervising adult. Nobody to save your asses out there. You're mm. going to be in charge. And that's, you know, for any teenager, that's a threading message. Mm. Scary, but mm. thrilling. <laughs> and Yamato, in fact, is, is, is a fairly major component of the book. Um, but all of his other elements are there as well. Matsumoto has created what his fans called the Leijiverse. Because uh, his first name is, is his pen name is Leiji. Mm. And the Leijiverse is essentially one unified continuity for all of his stories, in which all of his characters come round and round again and again in what he calls Tokinawa, the ring of time. <laughs> his belief is that time is a series of circles, mm -hmm. which can sometimes overlap, can sometimes have echoes of each other, can sometimes resonate. And so every single character he's created has either one or more time points in this series of circles. And his universe, his Lejiverse, revolves around all of those characters. It's, it's, seeing it's Wagnerian is, is, for a Leji fan, is automatic because he's a huge Wagner fan. Okay. Um, a great classical music fan. But again, wonderful story from his youth. When he was growing up, um, obviously, Japan was being bombed mm. fairly regularly. Also, all the men over 18 were going to war, mm. who were totally unfit or had to be kept at home because they were doctors or some such. So a huge number of men were dying and their possessions were being left behind. And he found one day in the mud in his hometown a set of Beethoven symphony gramophone records <laughs> that had been thrown out by the devastated widow of a guy who wasn't coming back. So he took them home and washed them, got all the mud out. He and his brother cobbled together as best they could a uh, working gramophone. And he re listened to this music because, you know, they didn't have anything else and fell in love. And that was the start of a war-long quest saying to friends who were clearing things out, if there are any records in your dad's old stuff, push them my way or your brother's old stuff. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take them. If your mum doesn't want them, I'll take them. Absolutely fascinating. Um, so he, he fell into Wagner naturally at a very early age. And as a result of that, his overarching view of his universe has the same scope as the ring cycle. Mm -hmm. It goes far back in time and far forward in time. And the characters it encompasses are reborn again and again to play out their fates. And if you look at a, a totally separate side of his work, Captain Harlock, mm. Albator in France, which is a huge success over there, Harlock is another guy who takes a warship into space. Mm -hmm. In his case, a galleon under full sail against troops invading the Earth and seeking to subjugate the Earth. And Harlock's principle is that he doesn't want to fight anyone. He wants peace with everybody, but what he has to have is freedom for everyone, not just for him. And if he can't have freedom, he will sail off into space and he will fight for it till he dies. Mm -hmm. And around him, there is, a, again, a whole canon of characters. Queen Emeraldus, the great pirate queen, who is married to his best friend. The Marzone, alien plant women who have their own ethos and their own honor and among his deadliest foes. All sorts of fascinating characters who integrate into his universe along with his contemporary manga characters. A young guy called Ban in Mirai Ban loses his parents, travels through time, goes forward, goes backwards, is very much a, a teenager of our time, but is also tied into the structure. So you can see how much playroom there is mm -hmm. in Matsumoto and how fun it is. And the other thing, actually, because I could bore about Matsumoto forever. <laughs> One of the things I might find most fun is that passion for music of his is so extensive that, because obviously all the while he was building his career in manga, he had to do a lot of jobbing work, like mm. all comic artists do. Your big projects, your passion projects, yes, but you've still got to have something to pay the bills every month. Yeah. So he did 
musicians' life histories in comic forms for a magazine called Rekopal, a Japanese magazine. And as far as I know, he, well, certainly so far, he's the only mangaka I've encountered who's done David Bowie as a comic. <laughs> um, he's, he's done an amazing run of both classical and pop musicians in in comic book form for Rekopal. And that's an area of his work that I've hardly seen mentioned in the West. It's just so much fun to explore this guy. Mm. And how, how did you get into, I mean, like the whole Daft Punk thing then, I guess everything oh, yeah. that lead into yeah, exactly. that? Because well, I, I never yeah. knew this about him and musicians. So was, that, <laughs> was he a fan of Dar- uh, Daft no, Punk? No, he'd never heard of Daft Punk. <laughs> when they but uh, they'd heard of him because, of course, they grew up in France and Belgium mm. reading comics translated yeah. his yeah. work. Mm-hmm. Um, they were huge Harlock fans. And yeah. they went to him and said, we are nuts about your work. We really, really want to do a concept CD <laughs> around, you know, that we, we can work on with you. Yeah. So the idea was that they would make the, this, this series of tracks, he would make videos for them, and then they would be stitched together into a movie. Mm. And that was the origin of the story of the interstellar star system. Yeah, mm. that's very, yeah, that's very and, cool. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting that in Japan, that, it's not that that's unknown or that nothing's been said about it, mm-hmm. but that side of his, that, that one element of his work is considered very, very minor. Mm. And in the West, of course, because in Europe, Daft Punk are huge. Yeah. People yeah. think, oh, well, Daft Punk, what about his work with Daft Punk? And, and in Japan, <laughs> you know, what about, you know, it's, it's, it's like saying, well, what about that one obscure track that Bowie did when he would date, was Davy Jones in the lower third? And you say, yes, but look at the workload of Bowie. And it's, it's on that level. But there's no doubt that he enjoyed enormously he loves getting to work with people from other disciplines and he loves getting to work with young musicians and young artists and young writers. He has now at 82, obviously he's still got the creative chops, Mm. but the energy to draw a full comic on the schedule to draw a comic on in Japan, which are brutal Mm. is very, very hard to find. So he works with a lot of young creators overseeing their work on his universe Mm. and getting them a start there and he's actually trained a great many like like all mangaka he's had assistants he's trained a great many Mm. of the working mangaka of japan today and had them in his studio and 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 they've passed on to their own great things so he's been both a pupil and a teacher and a collaborator with all sorts of artists and writers which is which is part of the richness of his work Hi, I'm Theo Howe, I'm a writer at Eastern Kicks and recent graduate in Film and Screen Studies. I want to talk about Masaaki Yuasa's Ping Pong. Now what strikes you first about Ping Pong is its slightly odd visual style. It's a lot rougher around the edges than lots of other anime of its era, and that's the case generally for Yuasa as a director. I think he's always got this really intriguing sense of the visual and how it might tell a story. And you can see that in other series like Tatami Galaxy, as well as his films like Night is Short, Walk On Girl and Mind Game. Now the other thing that's really interesting to me about Ping Pong is how it's not content to be a normal sports anime. Now don't get me wrong, I really like some sports anime. I'm partial to Hajime no Ippo, I really really like Haikyuu. But Ping Pong's always had designs to be something a bit different. And it's different in the sense that rather than simply being a tale of the underdogs triumphing over the big bads, the richer schools, the more skilled opponents, it takes the approach of not really having heroes and examining the psychological strains of success. Whether that comes from over-expectation, from being the best player at the best school, or a general sense of overconfidence and how that can affect the matches. But while it does all this, it still keeps the matches and the games incredibly interesting, exciting, and it uses this odd visual style to take those narrative themes and turn them into something that is much more out in the open and in the way that it's drawn. I think it's a really interesting marriage of the visual and the narrative, and I think it's an absolute masterpiece.
What did you think of the like the the film versions of then uh, the live action one of Yamato and uh, the the anime the sort of CGI version of yeah. Havelock? CGI version. Well, CGI has always has been a bit difficult, hasn't it? Till yeah. recently, it's only really in the past five years, I suppose, seven years mm. that we've seen CGI that can deliver True. what CGI wants to deliver, mm-hmm. and that's made it very complex. But I enjoy all those incarnations partly because from my point of view as as an historian of anime mm. and also as an artist myself mm-hmm. i like to see what happens to an artist's vision when you filter it through different things okay and mm. when you filter matsumoto's designs through a humanoid cgi mm. nobody has ever made an animation in cgi staying with the original animation okay yeah, because yeah. you know obviously people think Um, well, we can do CGI now, so why do we need to stay 2D? Mm. Why do we need to adopt that aesthetic? But Mm. wouldn't it be interesting to see what happened if you did that rather than say this is going to be in a three-dimensional world? You could do so many interesting things there. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I like them. I I enjoy them all. But my my attitude when I watch rubbish, um, and I'm not (laughs) saying that they're rubbish, but my attitude when I watch rubbish is exactly the same as my attitude when I watch something good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's what can you learn from this and what can mm. you take away from this? And, of course, the problem is that with properties that have been around for a while mm. and with the Internet today, you pretty well know what other people consider rubbish when you sit down to watch it. Yeah. And, in fact, I've sometimes, you know, said, said to friends online, I'm going to watch X now, and they've said, why are you bothering with that? <laughs> a, it's my job. I still yeah. have an anime encyclopedia. There may be another edition sometime in the future. I have to keep this up. And, B... What you think is rubbish and what I think is rubbish may be totally different things. Mm-hmm. And C, you have to dig through an awful lot of dirt before you get to the diamonds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, if, you, if you were panhandling for gold, and I don't know whether you saw the luminaries. That's a recent fantasy series about based, based on the, the, the novel set in New Zealand. It. It's on yeah. the BBC, like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, it wasn't what the book was. By okay. any means, um, somewhat like you know some of, of of the CGI's that we see, but one thing it did show me is that panning for gold is not a quick way to a fortune. And not <laughs> even that much of it was about panning for gold, but it was nasty, dirty, devious. You were as liable to be knifed or shot for your gold <laughs> as anything else. So, going down there every day and looking through the debris of the great stream of of animated entertainment from Japan. <laughs> And panning for gold is what I do. Mm. And I don't expect to get that much good stuff. I'm realistic. <laughs> um, so having said that, you know, when you get something like the Matsumoto CGI's where the stories are very, very simple and very, mm. very pure mm. and very basic, I don't expect to be surprised. What I expect is to be unsurprised in a new way, if that makes sense. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> to, to, to see the story I'm very familiar with, stripped down to its bare bones and dressed mm. in new clothes. Yeah. And see how that works. Mm. And I find that very, very interesting. Do you think they still capture... I mean, that's kind of the question, I guess, for these sort of epic space opera sprawling stories, how they actually boil that down to like a two-hour two hour film. Visually, you know? they're captured very, very well. Yeah. Visually, there's there's no doubt that a really top-notch CGI film mm-hmm. gives you that sense of sweep and adventure, and and they've been quite careful about the music. Okay, uh, music is a big part of Matsumoto's universe, and mm-hmm. you need to have those big epic, stirring themes yeah. that sweep people along. But for me, I have to say that the creaky and old tech as seventies animation is. Hmm. The, the first Captain Harlock series, the early Harlock animated movies, the first Yamato series, the early Yamato animated movies, capture that feeling of daring against all odds and epic adventure in a way that very few later versions do. Mm-hmm. Not to say the later versions are not good. Yeah. And they're often preferred by people who can't adapt to old hat animation. Yeah, it's probably but, a challenge for some people, I guess. Well, a huge challenge now, especially since kids are conditioned to expect a special effect every 45 seconds or hmm. something. No yeah. one. Attention spans are shot, poor little souls. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a different ethos. And, hmm. and what I always say to people is, is, is that if you want to get into 
older anime. Mm. Probably need to give yourself time and watch it as it was watched back then. Mm-hmm. Watch an episode a week or oh, an episode okay. every couple of days. Yeah. Ease into the ethos of it. Yeah. Rather mm. than blitzing your brain with two hours and saying that was boring, that's a waste of time. Mm. Throw yourself onto the series, and that will that will give you a lot more. That'll be. I mean, even just for like the sort of Netflix, YouTube gen generations mm. or now yeah, viewing habits. Yeah, I mean, yeah the idea box of set kind box of set, set, box set. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> idea. Yeah, you're absolutely the idea of like I, giving it a week between. I to me that would mean now there's something wrong with the series. <laughs> <laughs> why, you know, why don't I want to watch two or three yet, or four? Having yeah. said that, I don't know whether you saw Snowpiercer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not the series, only the film. Only the film, sorry. Oh, no, I, I watched the series. Oh, okay. Um, I watched the series on Netflix because I thought, this is almost a Matsumoto idea. Because mm, he has okay. um, a huge series called Galaxy Express 999 about a steam train through space. Oh, okay. And time. Uh, so I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. This is, you know, a, a sealed community mm. with nowhere to go. It's space on Earth. It's, you know, it's Star Trek, but not a train. Mm. <laughs> and I found that only being able to see one episode a week was really thrilling. Mm-hmm. It was, mm. you know, you had that's that. That's quite old school, sense, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. You had that sense of what will the Avengers be like this week? What will the man from Uncle be like this week? I can't <laughs> you know, it's, it, it was it was just that sense of anticipation that it built. Whereas we just sat down over the last three days and watched uh, the new season of Umbrella Academy. Oh yeah, the superhero. And it, it was really enjoyable. You know, it was a lot of fun. It's mm. a good little series. But knowing as the credits rolled on Snowpiercer that that was it till next Monday. <laughs> that really, you know, that really added something for me. Mm-hmm. That was that was quite something. And as you say, nowadays with box sets, you talk to people, yeah. oh yeah, I just knocked off 36 hours of Hannibal over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, congratulations, <laughs> well done. <laughs> Shall I call your psychiatrist or will you? <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's, but honestly, to sit down for a Matsumoto marathon, yeah. You could not watch all his shows end to end, even if you could get them. No, no, there's it's such just, a list of everything. It's too long. It's too enormous. I mean, we're going to be publishing. We had a lot of help from his private office, um, who helped us with all kinds of things. And they, they, one of the most wonderful things that they did for us was they helped us to check and verify what they say is the comprehensive list oh, okay. of his animation hmm. and manga. Mm-hmm. So as far as we know, this will be the first time that anyone in the West has published a comprehensive list of his anime and his manga. Oh, very cool. Mm. And it's just epic. It's it's huge. And that, that's, <laughs> again, that's one of the fun things about doing a book like this. You have to do an awful lot of cross-checking because with no disrespect mm. to any source at all, at companies, especially companies that have been working over 40, 50, 60 years, mm-hmm. people change, staff yeah. leave, yeah, yeah. use staff. Um, archives are misfiled and destroyed so whenever we get what somebody says is a comprehensive list both Darren and I are scholars we go to every source we can and cross-check and in this case luckily there are a great many um, European sources French Italian Spanish that have done a lot of logging of Matsumoto works over the years that have appeared in French um, Italian Spanish etc etc TV TV seasons um, in comics in children's magazines as snippets on on TV and by accessing all that knowledge and cross-referencing it we were able to to do a fair amount of work ourselves on verifying what had been translated what had come through you know to the west and make sure that nothing had been left out because as i say it's, it's not it's not that one disrespects the sources or distrust the sources it's just that i know from the mistakes i've made how easy it is for sources to be unable to be 100 percent certain mm. and so that that work of checking the lists and going through was um so worth doing and we're very pleased with it and then of course there's also the the, the wonderful joy we've had of working with the other contributors who are all matsumoto nuts <laughs> and each brought something very different um for example, Tim Eldred, who um, runs the Cosmo DNA website, which is, I think, Tim Tim would blush to hear me say this, but I think he's generally <laughs> agreed to be the ultimate Matsumoto resource in English. Um, 
Tim is by profession a comic artist and an animator. He directs animation and he, he was one of the artists who did the first American manga style comics. Mm-hmm. And so he understands Matsumoto's work on a really deep level, mm. not as an academic, but as a fellow pro who's been where Matsumoto was, being mm. given a property and told, make a comic book of this, or being given a property and told, we're going to do an animated show of this. And what Tim did for us, which I think is really thrilling, is he did a forensic analysis of Matsumoto's artwork based on the assistants who've worked with him at different times. Mm-hmm. So he could tell us mm. what contributions those assistants have made and how what we think of now at the end of a 65-year career as Leiji Matsumoto artwork is, it is Leiji Matsumoto artwork, but it's also a synthesis of all the people who've worked with him on it. And it's just mind-blowing. It's fascinating mm. to get that from someone who is a practitioner themselves and who knows what they're doing themselves is amazing. Um, Jonathan Tarbox, who is also coincidentally a, a comics publisher and translator, worked with Raijin Comics for many years, but is also in his day job an English teacher at a university in Saudi Arabia. He took a look for us at Matsumoto's work, The Cockpit, which we've not men- mentioned yet, but which is it's part of a big overarching stream called Senjo, or Battlefield. It's about World War II mm. and mm. how ordinary people, ordinary soldiers, sailors, airmen, react under pressure. And it's an incredibly humane, immensely moving work that doesn't try to demonise any side in this. Occasionally points fingers at officers and politicians, but I think if you're in a war, that's fair, fair dues. Um, they are usually the ones to blame for the whole mess. And what Jonathan's done is looked at that and analysed it not from the point of view of how the West expects heroes to behave, the um, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of model, mm-hmm. but how Asian heroes work. Uh, there's a wonderful book by a scholar called Ivan Morris um, about heroic failure that analyzes Japanese hero myths along the lines of failure being the proper choice for the hero. And that, to us in the West. It's just not what our popular culture has given us. Mm-hmm. It's not what we've been told. You win against all odds and that's what makes you a hero. Mm-hmm. Whereas a good deal of Asian mythology says sometimes losing the right way rather than winning the wrong way is more heroic. Mm. And so looking at a World War II battle saga through that lens, Jonathan's given us a wonderful cultural but also very human take on a really difficult subject oh i could go i mean people Hmm. are so cool when you when you give a writer their head on a subject that they absolutely love and say i'm going to support you i'm going to direct you because this has to fit the book but you just go for it and i will give you all the support i can that's the greatest joy for an editor because writers come around and they they knock your socks off time after time. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have um, a guy called Ed, Ed Hoff, Edmund W. Hoff, who is a PhD candidate at a university in Japan, has gone back through Japanese fanzines for us to unearth a history of how Matsumoto's work has meshed in with and impacted the growth of cosplay in Japan <laughs> in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Because yeah. his works were among the earliest to be cosplayed. They were hugely popular. Not the earliest by any means, because he, he told us in an interview, actually, that he was cosplaying himself as a kid. He mm. was cobbling a costume together from stuff his mum had around the house and running around being the characters in his favourite TV shows. So he said, you know, cosplay is nothing new. Why are they all making a fuss about it? We did it when I was six. Um, but, you know, just, just to look at him through that lens and see how his characters have worked in fandom and have influenced mm-hmm. fandom through costume. Fantastic. <laughs> and we've, we, we've got a pair of very academic cosplayers who are both, you know, serious and very well-trained academics and cultural historians, but who also have done costume for a long time together. And they give us a, a walk through the whole process of conceptualizing a costume, doing the research on the costume, doing the back 
background and digging into what makes that costume work and then actually building it step by step for two Matsumoto characters. Just astonishing things. That, that I, I am, I'm always excited to read a new academic book because I'm always excited to see what a scholar will do. But sometimes if, if you bring in people who aren't necessarily tenured scholars working to you know, keep their academic re- reputation up and mix them in and say, all of you just knock our socks off, you get the most fantastic effects. <laughs> Very cool. Hello, my name is Jonas Okrovsky. I've been with Eastern Kicks for six or seven years now. Um, And my favorite anime is Hunter x Hunter. Uh, That's because it's the closest thing to a perfect piece of fiction. Um, It's about 144 episodes of an incomplete story that takes every direction you might never expect and does it so analytically and perfectly that you wouldn't change anything about it. has the most endearing main character and supporting cast uh, and asks deeper and harder philosophical questions than many full-length books do. Um, the best thing about it is probably that it's uh, just about bored, bored people who are way too powerful um, and how they cope with it, how the different way their motivational structures make them cope with boredom. Um, and how that, in the end, after about 100 or about 80 episodes, becomes some of the most rewarding and tragic scenes I've ever seen. Far more rewarding and tragic than most films I've seen. Um, It also has the best game theory and battle analytics you've ever seen. Yeah, that's that's about it without getting into specifics. That's why it's the greatest piece of fiction ever made. So um, when is the book released? Is it published? We haven't got a final date yet. I mean, as you can imagine, publishers all over the world are responding to COVID-19 mm, the way yeah. people all over the world are responding to COVID-19. Yeah. Everybody's having to work remotely. And also, everybody's having to deal with the fact that supply chains are getting slower and slower. Mm-hmm. Um, again, most people don't realize. They think a publisher decides to publish a book, goes down the road to a printer, gets it printed, puts it on a <laughs> you sends it to a bookshop. The chain for a book is quite often that it will cross several continents mm, in the yeah. process of being made. Yeah. The paper may be bought in China and warehoused in Holland for a book being printed in America or warehoused on the opposite side of the States. And then the printing and finishing may be done in a third country altogether. And the shipping and distribution may be done in a fourth country. <laughs> now, at the moment, with everybody having everybody in the world having to work in a totally different way because of this pandemic, all of those steps have been stretched mm. into ridiculously slow time. So that's a long way of saying we don't actually have a publication date yet. Um, <laughs> Farland are working their socks off to have it out this year. Great. Um, and we're very keen on having it out this year before Matsumoto Sensei's 83rd birthday in January, okay. January 2021. Um, he himself says that he's, he's got too much work to finish, so he can't possibly die yet. So, <laughs> we, we are hoping. And, and, you know, some mangaka have lived very, very long, long lives. Indeed, the great Jiro Kawata, um, who created Eight Man and did the Japanese version of Batman, died last month. Uh, his family have only recently announced it. Um, I think he was 90, 91, 92. Wow. Shigeru Mizuki died a couple of years back at 92. Mm. A lot of that generation have been remarkably sturdy and long-lived and having a working. So we, we have our fingers crossed for yeah. Matsumoto. And we want it as long as we possibly can. And uh, it would be very, very good to see this book out so that he can see it and rejoice in it because he's had, obviously, a ton of books out about him in mm. Japan mm. and quite a few out in Italian and French. But to see how his work is appreciated in English has been too long in coming, in my view. The fact that, as far as I know, I may be mistaken here because I don't know all convention. As far as I know, he's never been asked to an American convention. Mm. And that, that seems very strange. Yeah, surprising. Not... Yeah, it is, isn't it? Because, he, as I say, he regularly travels to different venues in Europe. Yeah. And, uh, 
I'm sure that he would be. I know he's been to America, but I don't think he's been to an American convention. But you know what his real ambition is? Mm-hmm. And this is if your podcast has any listeners with any influence with Elon Musk or anyone like that, he wants to go into space. <laughs> he said, you know, he says he gave us an interview, which is in the book, um, which hasn't been published anywhere else. And he said his idea as an author was always that you could make whatever fantasy you liked. And your job as a, a writer, an artist, a creator was to make that fantasy convincing. But it had to be based in reality. <laughs> so uh, his, Galac- his, ni- his um, Galaxy Express 999 is based on a real-life train ride, ride that he took, just extrapolated into space. But mm-hmm. he said, all my life I've been writing about people going into space, and I've never done it. <laughs> and I really should do it just once before I die. <laughs> and I'm always saying to you know everybody in the Japanese space, space industry, you know, I don't mind. You don't need to insure me or anything. You don't need to give me any guarantees. It can be a one-way ticket. Just let me go into space before I die. <laughs> so that, that's, that's his unrealized ambition. And, and I think it's, it's pretty cool, honestly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I do, do very much hope that, as I said, that the book will be out before the end of this year or early next year. And one thing that I would say say to everybody listening if i may and this doesn't just apply to this book it applies to any book by any author Mm. please 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 if you possibly can go online and Mm pre-order because if publisher sees really good pre-orders not only do they know that this book will sell well but they also know that another book of this type might sell well okay so if you're buying a book on an unusual or not much written about animator or comic artist or whatever, you're showing that publisher that there's a market for those things. So you're helping in every way. And you're also helping them to know that the cash flow that they're laying out up front to print this book is not going to be wasted because they're going to sell some of it. And if you can't afford to buy the book, and I know a lot of people can't, go along to your nearest public library, your college library, with a, a printout of the page with it on and say, if you get this, I want to put my name down to borrow it. Hmm. Because again, with public libraries here in Britain and in a number of other countries, you may not know this, but every time you actually borrow a book from your published public library, the author gets money. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, That's it's cool. called public lending right, and it covers Britain, um, the Netherlands, Ireland, a few other countries. Hmm. But a record is kept every time the book is lent. It has to be borrowed because obviously they've got to have a record. And every time you take a photocopy from the book in the library, the author also gets money. Mm-hmm. So even if you can't afford to support your favorite author by buying the book, you can do so by going to your public library. You can also do so by going online, wherever you go to leave reviews. You know, Goodreads, Amazon, everywhere is okay. Mm-hmm. And leave a review. All those are ways that say to publishers this book is worth buying and mm-hmm. other books like this are worth putting out and say to authors, we love what you're doing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I know I'm looking forward to the book. So, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I'm making my pre-order. No, it's been a very, very interesting well, yeah. chat about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, you could take any of the contributors to this book mm-hmm. and spend an hour talking to them. And you would be thrilled and entertained and excited <laughs> all the way through there. They are all fantastic, fantastic writers. Now, I know I've only mentioned a few of them in detail, but I could I could keep you here for like three hours. <laughs> to everybody, they are amazing. So what I should do, actually, is I'll send you a list of the, the contributors yeah. and then you can have a look and see because they are they are all fascinating people. And just the things that they have to say mm-hmm. about working with comics and working with animation working with artists mm. are so worth knowing so yeah, yeah, worth sure. knowing. Yeah. we could yeah. include the whole list of all the authors in the yeah episode notes yeah. and everything anyway like well thank you so much yeah um i think we'll definitely uh, talk to you again soon about uh, another topic yeah 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 that was, it's it's been, it's been it was a really, great it was a great chat thank you very thank you very much it was very, it was really really interesting learning this stuff it's been an absolute pleasure, and, and considering that this is one of the hottest days in London, <laughs> it would be very nice for all of us, I think, to sit indoors and just chat rather than charge around doing anything outside. I'm That's not doing true. any charging around. No, 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 there, there's none of that today, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay. That's yeah. a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See you later. Bye. 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 You can find links to pre-order Helen's book on the website page for this episode.
Cool. it for now don't forget you can find all our previous episodes on apple amazon music spotify google or wherever you get your podcasts just search for eastern kicks subscribe and you'll never miss an episode (laughs) but for now cheers